Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've probably seen the billboards on I-91, a before picture of a person severely overweight and then a shot of them after weight loss surgery, looking dramatically different. Weight loss procedures like gastric bypass or gastric sleeve have become more accessible, but there are still concerns and stigma about them. Today, we unpack the pros and cons of bariatric surgery. We hear from surgeons in our state and from a local Connecticut resident who had bariatric surgery. What questions do you have about weight loss surgery? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, did you know minors starting at age 10 are eligible to get bariatric surgery? Coming up, we hear from Drs. Melissa Santos and Christine Fink at Connecticut Children's. First, joining us on Zoom is Dr. John Morton, professor and vice chair at Yale New Haven Hospital System. Dr. Morton, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to find out how you got interested in doing this type of medicine. Well, my career goes back now over 20 years, and I've done about 4,000 bariatric cases. And an interesting point is when I was a resident, I did not do a single bariatric surgery case, and here I am, this is my life's work. And I got interested in it when I was a fellow, and I learned that bariatric surgery was one of the more challenging technical surgeries around, and I wanted to be challenged and wanted to learn how to do it. And then after I I learned how to do it technically, I got to see the patients come back, and I was struck by more than one thing. One thing that struck me immediately was how grateful Uh, the patients were, and secondly, how well they did. Uh, One patient that I'll never forget is someone who came in who had been on insulin for many years, and just a few weeks after surgery, patient wasn't on insulin anymore, and it was really, really eye-opening, and and for me and my career, it was perfect. Modern bariatric surgery started roughly about when I started my academic uh, career in surgery, so it's, it's, like I said, it's been my life's work. So what you said when you started, there were about four or 5,000, uh, I believe, uh, cases a year. What's it look like today in terms of how many people are going and getting this surgery? Yeah, we've really grown over the last uh, few years. When I first started, it was less than 10,000, maybe, you know, like you said, about 5,000 or so. Latest estimates uh, from the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery say that we're doing roughly about 260,000 cases a year with the vast majority of those being adults, only about a thousand are done in adolescence. One other interesting thing is how many people qualify for weight loss surgery. It's roughly about 25 million. So that number of, you know, roughly a quarter million sounds like a lot, Mm -hmm. but it's still about 1% of the affected population. Can you describe briefly uh, these procedures? I mentioned gastric bypass and gastric sleeve. So if you could describe them briefly and how are they different? Uh, Sure. Well, we perform all of these procedures laparoscopically, meaning with the small incisions, and that's been a big advance, much less uh, risk of infection um, and things like that. 
the gastric bypass has been around since the mid 1960s, uh, invented by Dr. Ed Mason, the University of Iowa. And it was originally an ulcer operation. And he found by serendipity, patients lost weight. And simply put with the bypass, you create a brand new little stomach, roughly about the size of an egg, separated from the old stomach, divide the intestine in half, bring one half of the intestine up to the little stomach and then reconnect it. And you get some pretty amazing results. Like I mentioned before, it's about an 80% um, remission of diabetes at one year for patients. And um, it's been very effective. The sleeve gastrectomy, however, has become the most popular procedure in the United States. And it's about two out of three of the procedures that we do. And it is a much simpler operation and has really, I think, created a lot of interest in the field um, because there is a little bit less complication rates associated with the sleeve than the bypass. And with the sleeve, what we do is we take the stomach, roughly about the size of a football, and make it into a long skinny tube, roughly about the size of a banana. And I'm happy to detail how the operations actually work, you know, from a weight loss standpoint, because it's uh, clearly more than restriction. There's hormonal changes. And the other interesting thing is we used to believe that it was malabsorptive, uh, meaning you just didn't take in all those calories. But what we've learned is really most of the change occur occurs hormonally and through energy expenditure. You actually burn more calories after you have the surgery. And how much do these procedures cost, Dr. Morton? Well, the good news is the majority of these procedures are covered by insurances. Um, all the major insurers, Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna, United, they cover it. And they're covered pretty much routinely by Medicare and Medicaid. Um, but there are you know, still some gaps in coverage. If you pay out of pocket, obviously depends on the hospital and state that you live in, but it's roughly about $20,000 for a sleeve and $25,000 for a bypass. And like at many hospitals, there's always sliding scales for patients that can uh, help accommodate whatever their economic needs are. We're learning more about weight loss surgery with our guest, Dr. John Morton, professor and vice chair at Yale New Haven Hospital System. Uh, you talked a little bit about the, the different types of procedures, the fact that it's covered by insurance. But what about, uh, I guess, the, the side effects or complications? We're hearing from a listener on Twitter who says, having lost four loved ones due to complications from these procedures, it hurts to even listen to this conversation. So can you tell us more about uh, you know, you know, what you have observed uh, is, as your time as a doctor seeing patients go through this procedure? Well, first and foremost, I'll extend my sympathy to the, um, to the listener who had that happen in her family. That's obviously extremely tragic. Um, it's also extremely rare nowadays. Um, the mortality rates for bariatric surgery nationally now are about one out of a thousand. And it's a big improvement from, you know, roughly 20 years ago when it was about 2%. Um, any death is a tragedy, but it's also important to keep in mind, there is clear and present danger of doing nothing about your weight. We know that when you carry extra weight, you're going to carry extra medical problems. And on average, there's a decrease in lifespan of anywhere from seven to 14 years. And when it comes to the diseases out there that are associated with obesity, they're legion. They're everything from diabetes to high blood pressure to sleep apnea. Even the latest culprit, COVID, is very strongly associated with obesity. So there is a danger of not doing anything. The one thing I would say that helps mitigate risk, helps lower the risk, is going. Mm, Dr. Morton, are you still there? Oh, 
It looks like we lost Dr. Morton. Again, uh, we're, today we're talking about weight loss surgery uh, with our guests. Uh, I want to actually uh, remind our listeners, if you have a question or a comment, we're going to have... Um, be accomplished, but oh. it does require vigilance. Uh, Dr. Morton, looks like your Zoom uh, faded out there. We didn't hear what you said uh, near the end, but I just wanted to reset. Let our listeners know they can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, as we talk about weight loss surgery. Uh, You had mentioned, Dr. Morton, earlier that the number of people getting uh, bariatric surgery has grown uh, dramatically uh, over the last uh, two decades. I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, when we think about stigma surrounding weight loss, um, do you find that that um, might be lifting at all and that is encouraging more people to get this surgery because other um, ways of trying to lose weight haven't worked for them? Yeah, I think it is encouraging to see uh, the increase in numbers. But like I said, it's still um, about 1% of the affected populations getting therapy. But I think it is getting better. A few things have helped. Uh, I think better understanding of the disease of obesity and the American Medical Association did uh, declare obesity as a disease way back in 2013. And one of the better understandings of it is it's not about psychology. It's not about willpower. It's really about physiology. If you have 15, 20 pounds to lose, that's totally possible. And other programs, commercial programs can help you get there. But if your BMI is higher, it is much, much more difficult to lose weight on your own. Success with diets once your BMI gets above, say, 35 is about 5%. So it's a rare circumstance. And it has to do with the fact that your body's working against you, not for you. There's a metabolic adaptation that occurs. And what happens is when you're trying to diet, your body's not stupid. It's going to do everything in its power to maintain that weight. So what happens is it turns down the thermostat, you burn less calories. The other thing that happens is the hunger hormone goes up, ghrelin, the satiety hormone, GLP-1 goes down. The interesting thing when it comes to surgery, the opposite happens. So the hunger hormone goes down, satiety, fullness hormone goes up, and you actually burn more calories. So you get your body to work for you, not against you. So I think better understanding of the disease has helped. I think there is a celebrity aspect to this. We know the impact that Katie Couric's uh, colonoscopy had on rates of utilization of colonoscopy, and certainly some of the celebrities who've had bariatric surgery have helped. And I think we're getting better, but there's still a long ways to go. I've operated on CEOs and very prominent people in this country, and unfortunately, not of them, not all of them want to come forward to talk about uh, what led them to have bariatric surgery. They don't want people to know. And I think we do have to erase that barrier and stigma because it's just like any other field of of medicine, just because a personal habit or lifestyle or genetic makeup might have led you to have a disease, it doesn't preclude you from seeking help. If you smoke and you have lung cancer, you go get someone to take care of that cancer. If you drink too much and you have liver failure, we still are able to treat you. So I think the same sort of thing ought to happen in obesity. And Programs like this, I think, hopefully will go a long way to extending the conversation. We wanted to hear from a Connecticut resident uh, who went through weight loss surgery. Joining us now is Kate Medina, who lives in Tolland. Kate, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you. And so can you tell us, uh, you know, when you went through your weight loss journey, at what point did you decide that bariatric surgery was something that you felt you needed to do? Um, for me, it was, 
it's one of those things where, you know, the, the last straw that broke the camel's back ended up um, for me personally being when I was trying to conceive, um, trying to have a baby with my husband, and it just wasn't happening. So I ended up in a fertility clinic um, getting testing done and everything checked out fine except for the fact that my weight was the sort of elephant in the room. And uh, they turned me away saying that, you know, basically I, I was infertile due to obesity. And they really kind of weren't willing to do further testing or further anything to help me with that. And so for me anyways, that was that was it, you know, but... What's interesting is after that process, after that being the the one matchstick that got ignited, in the light of that, I saw all of the matchsticks in my history that I never let be lit um, because there were so many reasons that ended up contributing to this. Um, In 2019, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, uh, which is pretty much a life sentence because it's not going away. Um, I have terrible circulation issues in my legs. I have always had feet issues. I've worked in service professions my entire adult life. Um, I went through a depression at some point in my 20s and because I had always been a little bit overweight, um, manageable-ish, but I went through a depression at some point for a number of years and it just propelled me into the zone where similar to what um, Dr. Morton had been talking about. It's like, no matter what I did, I just couldn't get myself down. Like there was a certain level I could maintain, um, but I just couldn't break through the barrier to get beyond uh, no matter what diet program I was using. So the fertility thing ended up being, you know, the match that lit the fire. But um, when I examined my reasons why it, it sort of, encompassed so much more than that for me. I understand that you had your surgery in in January of 2021. And so how did that go? And can you talk about, you know, life after the surgery? Sure. Um, So the surgery itself uh, went well. And recovery from that was a little bit of a a rocky road for me personally. Um, It's not the case for most people. Most people are sort of the next day getting ready to leave the hospital and back home. Um, For me personally, it was a little bit of a tricky, I was in the hospital for five days um, recovering. And we think between my surgeon and myself, we think that it was more just my personal reaction um, to coming off anesthesia. It's just something within, I have a very sensitive system to things. So after that, however, it's been smooth sailing um, more or less. It's, I feel like I've struggled more with the mental aspect of letting go of my habits with food. Um, and that's something that working with a therapist and working, uh, being a part of the support group, um, weight loss support group that I'm part of, it's, it's been really helpful um, to just sort of grasp uh, letting go of those old habits. I think that that's a little bit more of a challenge than really the physicality of it because you, you physically can't hold too much food after that um, as you shouldn't be able to. And so it's just sort of dealing with the mental part of letting go. 
That's an important point that you raise because uh, the surgery is one thing, but having to adjust, as you mentioned, uh, habits and thinking about uh, differently about uh, food. And I'm curious if you can talk more about the support that you've received after this surgery. Sure. Um, so I had my surgery done with Hartford Healthcare. And during COVID, um, it, it sort of out of necessity and trying to keep people connected, they created a Facebook support group um, for those of us who had had surgery and were surgery hopeful. And so um, we were able to really connect on a daily level. Um, and that's been so helpful getting into sort of like the mindset of the surgery accepting like it's a whole process we call it a journey because it really truly is a journey um, moving towards surgery getting through the surgery moving past it um, and it was really helpful to have that support group there and um, the professionals and yeah, administrators of the group had just been really so helpful and not only that but networking therein and finding you know other people who you connect with and I had i gained a best friend out of it. And I just, you know, there's so much that I gained from this process um, that I totally hadn't been expecting. Um, working with a private therapist, working with the dietitian um, that I have, and all of that has sort of really just helped me to grasp the entirety of it. Um, because like I said, like if there's so much of it, that's a mental acceptance. Um, you have to more or less find all of those reasons why you did this to really put the emphasis on that mattering more than, you know, the food that you turned to for comfort in previous times. I understand that your insurance plan covered this procedure. Uh, now that it's been more than a year since you've had it, are you pleased with the results? What can you tell us, Kate? Yeah, um, so... For me personally, I lost about 50 pounds prior to the surgery. Um, I wanted to just sort of push as hard as I could, get those habits in place. I think that really did help me out in the long run um, to get that process started beforehand. And so since my heaviest, I've lost about 175 pounds. Um, I had a little bit more than 200 to lose total. Um in my opinion. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. Um, the trouble is, is that once you get a little bit closer to your goal, your weight loss isn't quite so rapid anymore. Um, it does kind of slow down. So the last, you know, 30, 40 pounds is going to be a little bit more of a challenge, but mm -hmm. I'm at the point now where I accept the challenge. You know, I, I'm walking four and a half miles um, when I go for my walks and that's not something I was able to even fathom before. Um, so it's been, it's been an, an extreme, like it's, it's a really surreal process um, because I still catch myself looking in the mirror, expecting to see the big girl that I always saw. Um, and so it's just sort of like a alternate reality kind of to be living in going shopping in the regular clothes section and not the plus size. And uh, it's been surreal. But like I said, I've gained so much from this process and lost at the same time, but my life has been tremendously enriched mm. in ways that I did not expect. Well, I can hear your smile, Kate, and I'm really happy to hear that <laughs> about your results. And you had mentioned, you know, all of these factors that led you to this, this surgery in terms of your health, that you're doing better? 
Yes. Um, so my multiple sclerosis is still there. However, um, I feel like without the strain of that weight on my frame, the majority of the weight, um, it's just I'm less spasmatic in that sense. Um, circulation, still working on it. That's going to be an ongoing process. But, you know, it's it's funny because before when I would walk into a doctor's office for any number of these things, I was turned away with the excuse of, well, it's your weight. It's the weight that caused this. And now I feel like hopefully anyways, I'll be able to be taken just a little bit more seriously, um, not only medically, but in everything in life. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate reality that when you are, quote, more than, you're seen as less than. Um, you know, even job interviews, like really it, it kind of spills over into almost every aspect of your life when you're an overweight person that you just are viewed differently. So that part has been pretty eye-opening, too, to sort of be living in different shoes now. Well, thank you, Kate, uh, for telling us a little of your story. I wish you all the best and good luck uh, with, uh, with the rest of your plans. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're talking about weight loss surgery. You can join us, 888-720-9677. Valentina's calling in from Farmington. Valentina, what did you want to share? Um, I wanted to share that I had a sleeve gastrectomy in February of 2020. Um, it was it's been a great experience as far as I've gotten the results I'm looking for. Um, I actually ended up losing about 30 more pounds than I intended to. And like, I have to eat like it's my job to not continue losing weight. Um, I guess as far as some background, I am quite tall. So I think one of the reasons it was easy for me to get as large as I did is that um, aside from the fact that for most of my life, I was thin. So when I looked in the mirror, I always saw a thin person, even when I had 100 pounds to lose. Um, I also, being an athlete and being six feet tall, actually, like, I realize now how many calories I needed to consume to just maintain my weight. And when you already have to eat a lot of food to just stay where you are, it's really easy to, you know, eat a little bit more than you should on a regular basis. Um, and as far as, far as having comorbidities, um, I had sleep apnea. Um, I also had depression, which was not a result of being overweight so much as something that let me get to the allowed me to get to the place of, of needing to lose um, that much weight as far as you know diet exercise doing great I've lost everything I needed to and then I hit a depressive period and I gain 40 pounds and then I lose again and then I gain again and <laughs> so it was just that um, up and down of reaching my goals and then having everything crushed because of other things going on. Um, that made me decide that, you know what, I need a definitive solution that um, allows me to be in better control of this, regardless of what may be happening with my mental health. And since the sleeve, you've been able to avoid those up and downs. This has been good for you, Valentina? Um, yeah, I have. I've been able to avoid the up and downs. Um, so food is not something I think about and stress about constantly anymore. Um, as far as, you know, I definitely had a, um, I was an emotional eater and that's, that's not a thing for me anymore. So that's, that's been, that's, that's been also another way that it feels like, you know what, you're set free, um, that, and I didn't spend most of my life as a very large person. And so, um, 
I see now like all the things that I was missing out on that were part of my life that I wasn't doing or couldn't do because I, um, you know, you can't do what you, or I couldn't at least do what I could at 270 pounds that I could do when I was at 160, which as a woman who was six feet tall was like, you know, that, that was a good weight for me as far as like, you know, um, that was maybe a size eight. Well, Valentina, thank you for sharing your experience with us here on the show. You can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I wanted to go back to Dr. Morton from Yale. Uh, we just heard uh, two very interesting uh, experiences after their decisions to uh, go through weight loss surgery. And I liked what Valentina said about, you know, the goals can be different. Uh, and it's really a matter of, for each individual, you know, how much that they want to lose to get to that healthy point that they're looking for. Can you talk more about what you heard? Well, first of all, congratulations to them both. They've had, you know, terrific results and, and really testament to their work and and the surgeon's work there. Um, I think a couple of things come to mind. I think uh, the first patient talking about her multiple sclerosis emphasized one point. That's an autoimmune disease. One thing we know about obesity is it's a disease of inflammation. So if you're able to decrease weight, you can decrease circulating inflammation. And some of the autoimmune diseases can improve, may not go away but they can improve. The other thing to just emphasize is when you go to accredited centers like the ones we have here at Yale, we have a multidisciplinary team that includes psychologists, nutritionists, and all the consultants that are needed. And I think that's really important in, in both caring for the patient after surgery, but even more importantly, prior to surgery, that weight loss prior to surgery made a huge difference in our first patient's um, outcomes. And there's other ways that you can prepare, smoking cessation, doing a medical inventory, making sure they're not weight promoting drugs out there. The other thing I heard in, in both of the conversations was about um, accessing care and how members of the medical community didn't always listen. I think that's something that we have to work on. And I was past president of our Society for Bariatric Surgeons. And one of the things I wanted to do was to have outreach to the different fields of medicine. So we had the entire house of medicine working for us, including primary care, orthopedics, you name it. So I think we still have a lot of work to do in that direction. And last point to make is about earlier referral. If patients come to surgery uh, sooner rather than later, they end up having much better results. But these are great results for those, those patients. And I'm, I'm just happy that they're doing so well. Uh, to wrap, Dr. Morton, you said something about accreditation. And so for listeners who are interested in weight loss surgery, that's important to find an accredited uh, center before they begin this process? I believe so. And in full disclosure, I chair the um, accreditation program for American College of Surgeons. And it's um, oh, we accredit over 850 hospitals in the United States. And um, you can access it. It's the acronym is MBSAQIP. And there's been published data to show that when you go to accredited centers, you have um, less complications, less cost, and quicker return to work. So all those things are available to folks at MBSA Equip. One thing that's interesting, if you're contemplating surgery, you can actually go into that website and there's a risk benefit calculator. It can show you how much weight you might lose with the different operations, as well as the relative risk that might be involved. And you can make an informed decision uh, through that calculator. 
Well, thank you, John, John Morton, for those resources. We'll be sure to share that on our social media at Where We Live. Dr. John Morton, again, is professor and vice chair at Yale New Haven Hospital System. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, children who are obese are also eligible for weight loss surgery. We talked to two local health care providers about when these procedures are necessary. What questions do you have? You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this year, we focused an episode on childhood obesity increasing during the pandemic, and we heard something that surprised us. There are instances when bariatric surgery is recommended for children. There's no age minimum. The WHO recommends that children could get the procedure starting at age 10. That may surprise you, too, but my next guests are here to talk about when these procedures are necessary. Joining us now on Zoom, Dr. Melissa Santos, Division Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children and Clinical Director for the Pediatric Obesity Center. Dr. Santos, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's and Surgical Director of the Bariatric Surgery Program, and she's also Vice Chair of Surgery at UConn School of Medicine. Dr. Fink, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having me. Our listeners... Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Fink, I'll start with you. When I wanted to know when you got interested in performing uh, this type of surgery for children, and what have you seen through the years in terms of, of the number of procedures done for, for children? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, as a pediatric surgeon, it was not a procedure that I thought I would be embarking upon Um, Pediatric surgeons typically train as general surgeons first and then go on to specialty training focusing on children. So as a general surgery resident, I did do several bariatric cases, and I did see the impact that they had on the lives of the adults that I had taken care of. So fast forward when I was done with training and I had started my first job and I started seeing kids um, come to my clinics, you know, for things such as gallbladder disease. And we were starting to see it at younger and younger ages, as well as an increase in uh, sleep apnea, diabetes, soft tissue infections. And so as a surgeon, I was treating the symptoms that they were having instead of addressing the major problem 
um, that we were seeing. And that was the obesity epidemic coming um, to, to light. Um, so it was at that point that I figured we needed to have a directed approach to trying to treat why these children were, were presenting with these things that we commonly had only seen in adults. Um, and as we know, you know, obesity has become a major risk factor and over and in over one generation, the rates of obesity have about tripled among preschoolers and adolescents and quadrupled among children ages six to 11. So at that point, we started working on would it be safe for the surgical intervention um, in children and have the same success that um, adults had with the children have it as well. And there was a lot of process that occurred. And this was back in 2002. Um, and, you know, Teen Labs, which was led by Dr. Tom Inge at the time at Cincinnati Children's, had created a huge NIH study looking at the impact of the gastric bypass surgery on children. And what Teen Labs has, has um, shown us over the, the last decade is that it is incredibly safe and it actually impacts children and their outcomes. All of the comorbidities, such as diabetes, sleep apnea, if, if they have a surgical intervention, they will be cured from that. And that will, will only in effect help them lead a healthier life. So in my career, we did start with the gastric bypass, but as time goes on, we've become a little bit less um, invasive. We do it laparoscopically and we usually start with a sleeve gastrectomy now. And just like Dr. Morton had shared earlier, the purpose of the sleeve is to remove about three quarters of your stomach it not only makes you feel full faster, but it impacts some of your physiology and your hormone levels and decreases your, you know, your ghrelin levels and um, increases your GLP-1 levels. And, and you see a pretty dramatic weight loss. These kids, it just turns their lives around. And, you know, I've been really happy that I pursued taking this on. At Connecticut Children's, we do a fantastic job. We are now a center of excellence in metabolic and bariatric surgery. We partner with Hartford Healthcare, Dr. Tischler and Dr. Papasavas to deliver the best care for children. That doesn't mean anybody should go to any surgeon to have it done. There are clear guidelines from the American Association of Pediatrics saying you should go to a center of excellence or a center that has multidisciplinary care that starts with medical weight loss, um, psychology and psychiatric counseling, nutrition support, physical therapy, and a holistic approach to the family and to the lifestyle, and then pursue um, surgical intervention. Um, so it has to have that comprehensive approach. I believe Dr. Morton said about a, a thousand cases a year are with uh, surgeries are done on children. You know that seems pretty small, but I was looking at this study by the American Academy of Pediatrics published in in 2019 that says data suggests that youth with severe obesity may not have adequate access to metabolic and bariatric surgery, especially among underserved populations. And then you just outlined how we've seen childhood obesity uh, really dramatically grow. And so when we hear those numbers and look at the data, uh, are you concerned that there are children out there that, that need this type of surgery, but they haven't been able to access it? And why is that, Dr. Fink? Absolutely. Um, you know, I can talk about, you know, just generically some of the cases we've seen. You know, our program does have a lot of children that are from underrepresented minorities, and they have social determinants of health that may present barriers for them getting to us to seek the treatment. You know, barriers such as they can't make it to the appointment. We had one child that we were planning on surgical intervention and just couldn't get to get his cardiac test done to make sure his, his heart would be safe for surgery. The car would break down, the family couldn't get him there. You know, it was all these things. And so we worked really hard to get, you know, Medicaid cabs to get them. 
there are a lot of barriers. And if, if we don't wrap our arms around some of the barriers for these children, they don't have access to the care. Even with the pandemic where we saw the lack of the ability to connect with them even virtually because they didn't have access. So yes, it is something we worry about. Um, a large portion of our program um, does have underrepresented minorities, which is a little bit different than the teen lab study reported on, which was mostly Caucasians. Mm -hmm. um, and we work really hard as a program to make sure we do everything in our power to open the doors so that it doesn't become a barrier to present to us. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. Dr. Santos is with us. You're a psychologist. And so talk about your role at Connecticut Children's, helping children and families get prepared for this weight loss surgery, if that is something that's recommended by their provider. Yeah, so thank you so much. So all of our patients that uh, are with us at Connecticut Children's do see psychology throughout their entire um, part of the program, you know, as we oftentimes talk about uh, Dr. Fink and I, you know, Dr. Fink performs surgery on the stomach, but not on the head. Um, and so we know that there's a lot of changes that have to be made prior to surgery. And then after surgery too, I think you've heard from the, the two callers who have spoken about their experience with bariatric surgery. It is so life-changing um, and the way that their lives change afterwards, but we're also doing this procedure in uh, teenagers who lives change every other minute of their of their day. And so we always want to be there to support them throughout, get them the care that they need as they undergo this really amazing change to their lives and to their bodies and to their overall well-being. And so we see them throughout before surgery, after surgery, and then connect them in their community if we need to. And if a, a child still doesn't feel ready, they're able to say, no, it's not just the parent's consent and this happens. Absolutely. So we are very invested in ensuring that the child is the one that's making the decision that surgery is the best thing for them and that we're really doing this at the right time for them. You know, we don't want to interfere with um, proms or graduations or other school events that are really important to them where they may not want to be dealing with uh, prep for a surgery or life right after surgery. And so we really work right from the beginning with our families to talk about, you know, if we do pursue surgery, what is the right time? What is the best time for a child to, to really undergo this and to ensure that for our teens, they have a say in all those decisions. Mm. Uh, Dr. Fink, I wanted to bring you back in because when I think about uh, children and, you know, obviously it's a lifestyle change, but, you know, their parents are the ones, you know, buying the food and you know, cooking for them. And I'm just wondering you know, how you get the whole household involved so that, you know, this, the surgery, they go through the surgery, but that they're able to, you know, get the, the results that are needed so that they can become healthier again. Thank you for that question. That's a great one. Um, one of the things that we notice is, is that when the children are, are undergoing this journey towards weight loss, a lot of times the parents um, have been there as well. And so sometimes it's really easy on us because the parents have gone, gone down this path and come in advocating for their children. That's, that's the easy family to work with. The harder family are those that um, don't necessarily have that as a barrier for themselves. Um, and then they come in confused why their child is facing this. Um, what we, we have in our program is we have, like Melissa said, you know, dedicated psychology support that really works with them. But we also have a fantastic nutritionist um, who meets with them both virtually as well as um, you know, in person and really walks through the family. Um, changes, the dynamic changes that they need, whether it's foods and how to read a food label. Plus, we also have support groups. And the support groups are really important for the families to reach out to each other um, to help them each overcome some of the barriers. 
Again, you're hearing Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're talking about weight loss surgery for adults and now children with my guest, Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's and Surgical Director of the Bariatric Surgery Program. Also, Dr. Melissa Santos, Division, Division Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back. And what questions do you have? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about weight loss surgery and how obese children are able to undergo the procedure as well. My guests on Zoom, Dr. Melissa Santos, Division Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's, and Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's and also Surgical Director of the Bariatric Surgery Program. Uh, Dr. Fink, I mentioned data. So what does the data say long-term if a, a child undergoes bariatric surgery, what their lives and their health looks like? And maybe in the twenties and thirties. Um, absolutely. So first of all, they see a dramatic improvement in their quality of life within the first year after uh, bariatric surgery, a lot of their activities of daily living, their comfort level with their bodies, um, and just a new way of, of presenting themselves shows up. I, I'm Dr. Santos and I always used to chuckle because we would notice the children before surgery you know, would come in and they would be, you know, barely dressed, they'd be in their pajamas and their slippers. And all of a sudden after surgery, you saw this distinct change where some of them would be wearing makeup, they would be dressed, you know, in really um, nice clothes. And it just, you could just tell that they thought differently about themselves. And that was so reassuring to see. It Just because we do bariatric surgery doesn't mean though that, that, that they have no other work to do. And what I always tell them that surgery is a tool, it's not a cure. And it's still hard work and a journey that they have to walk through the rest of their lives in healthy lifestyles. So eating healthy, you know, exercising and maintaining that. So it's not uncommon for them to lose uh, a significant amount of weight in the first year, but then they hit a plateau and sometimes there's some uh, weight gain that occurs. We do have a great medical specialist that works in our clinic that we try to predict when that plateau will happen and make sure we're doing everything we can at that point to support them. Um, their, like I said, their comorbidities do significantly get better. So most of them don't need their BiPAP for sleep, sleep apnea anymore. Uh, 95% of them don't need insulin uh, for their diabetes. Um, and they can participate. We have lots of kids that then participate in some five keys mm. and it's really reassuring to see, mm. but they do still need lifelong care. And we do transition them to an adult program after five years with which we see them. The majority of our patients are between 16 and 18 years of age. And so then we, we usually transition them to the Hartford Hospital program because they still need long-term care. I love hearing you share that, you know, these children, after they undergo this procedure, it appears that, you know, they've got confidence and, you know, that helps uh, with their, their mental health. Uh, Dr. Santos, what did you want to add in terms of that post-recovery and what the data shows, you know, you know 10, 20 years uh, down uh, after a child has gone through this surgery? Yeah, we're getting the data now on adolescents post-surgery now many years down the road. And I think it, it very much shows that bariatric surgery is a positive for people. Um, you know, there's going to be still times after surgery that are challenging, but that kids really 
they're amazing. I mean, the kids that Dr. Fink and I see in our program are absolutely amazing. And what they accomplish after surgery is really just so great to see with their moods lifting and being able to do stuff that they, they've wanted to do before, being able to shop at regular stores, being able to do um, sporting events. We've had several kids that have done the, the Manchester road race afterwards and just seeing them be able to accomplish these goals that they've always set for themselves. And that's really what we focus on is, is what do you want to accomplish after surgery and focus less on the number on the scale, but really what are those things that you want to achieve and to see them be able to do that. And now they come back to us as adults who have had families now. It's just so nice to see. Uh, Dr. Fink, you mentioned that, you know, weight gain can happen. And so can you t- tell us, you know, why that happens after these, uh, pr- these surgical procedures, how that's possible? Sure. I still think it's a physiology thing where your body goes through this rapid you know, catabolic phase where you're dropping your ghrelin levels and you're increasing your hormone GLP-1, but it hits a, it's a point. And then all of a sudden your body tries to, um, you know, work against you, whereby you uh, start to gain a little bit. Plus you kind of realize that you've lost a lot of weight and some of the rigor with which you had put around your meal times, how you're eating, what you're eating kind of becomes a little bit more lax. And th- those are the times we need to pull people in, have them come to support group we're all human. Nobody's perfect all of the time. Um, but we want to set realistic expectations and, you know, have them reset some of their goals um, because it is a lifelong journey. We have about five minutes left. And, you know, earlier I'd talked about and asked our guests, including Dr. Morton, about insurance coverage for adults. And I'm wondering, is this something that uh, children are able to get, you know, their, their insurance providers, uh, you know, approve it? And in terms of when we think about barriers, uh, you know, oftentimes we think about insurance, but I'm wondering, you know, what kind of uh, conversations you're having with pediatricians about these children uh, who have these comorbidities? I'll start with you, Dr. Fink. Uh, Excellent question. So we have barriers on both sides, both on the insurance side, as well as on the pediatrician side. Um, There is still a feeling out there that obesity is a lack of willpower and not a disease, which I can't express more strongly that it is not. These children are dealt a terrible hand and us as medical providers need to be able to help them um, with this. It's, it's similar to any kind of um, disease you might treat. With that said, it's through education. Dr. Santos does a fantastic job going across the state educating um, and uh, providing those opportunities for, for pediatricians and medical providers within the state to ask us questions so that they can see that this is not scary and we are not doing something that's going to alter their life forever, rather make it better. With insurance providers, it is not uncommon that about 20% of the cases that we try to do, I have to have a medical peer-to-peer. And, you know, about two to three cases a year get denied and we can't do anything to stop it. Um, Whether it's exclusionary benefit on insurance um, or if the coverage is just that they want to wait till um, the child is 18. We try to, you know do everything we can to show them proof of of the efficacy of this, the long-term benefit and quality of life, as well as health comorbidities, which is a bottom line to the insurance companies. But for some reason, I don't don't feel like we've made enough movement in that area. When we think about stigma among healthcare providers, I'm wondering if you can just elaborate a little bit more, Dr. Fink, or are there pediatricians out there who think that, you know, this is not the right uh, way to go? And, you know, what's the alternative then? Right. Um, once again, it's education. I did have a pediatrician who had called me from out of state. She was a medical director for one of our major insurance companies, and she had originally denied one of the procedures. And so I called her for peer to peer to try to understand why the denial, because this 
child had several comorbidities and a BMI over 45 and, um, and was more of an adult size, was 16, but more of an adult size. And her comment was, well, he, well, he should just try keto. And so here's that, that stigma and that lack of knowledge, knowing that you can try any diet in a lot of these children. And most of them have tried everything under the sun. The problem is physiology and their bodies are working against them. And, and until we can change that, the best way we have of changing that right now is, is surgery. And I think it's just that constant education. Dr. Sanchez, just a, a couple minutes left that you want to end here. I think one of the other things to think about in terms of cost that maybe we don't talk about as much too is that, you know, our families, even after bariatric surgery, return back to the environments that they were in before. And we know that for many of our families, you know, one of the challenges is access to grocery stores, access to green space. So I still think that that is a part of the conversation we still need to continue to have is what are those costs as we think about how do we get families to be able to access fresh fruits and vegetables, to get to those uh, grocery stores, to be able to get to a gym or some other place where they can be physically active because their neighborhood may not be that option. And particularly for some of our families that come in, that's a reality that sometimes their neighborhoods and, and the environment that they live in won't always support bariatric surgery. And I think that that's a cost that oftentimes we don't talk a lot about. Thank you for bringing that up. Dr. Melissa Santos, again, Division Chief of Pediatric Psychology at Connecticut Children's and the Clinical Director for the Pediatric Obesity Center. Thanks for coming on. This was an important conversation. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's and Surgical Director of the Bariatric Surgery Program. Thank you, Dr. Fink, as well. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor, and Katie Pellico was on the phones. We hope you have a great weekend.